Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. A couple of weeks ago, I attended the annual Direct Air Capture Summit, hosted by Climeworks, and had the chance to moderate a discussion on setting up policy frameworks for scaling up carbon removal. The summit attracted 400 participants in person and thousands more online. It has become a central convening of direct air capture and carbon removal experts from around the world. It offers a unique opportunity to understand what's on the mind of those at the forefront of carbon removal policy, technology, and carbon markets. As I stand up a new initiative aimed at scaling carbon removal in Canada, the sessions and networking provided useful insights on where the industry is going, the opportunities on the horizon, and challenges we should expect to contend with. I personally came away from the event re-energized about the prospects of direct air capture and carbon removal more broadly. That's mostly because it was great to see a really elevated conversation around carbon removal. For example, the way we talk about the cost of direct air capture is getting more precise and more analytical. The way we envision the role of voluntary and compliance markets is more nuanced. The imperative for equitable and just deployment is getting more attention. And the scope for carbon removal deployment to span beyond the US and Europe is finally being realized. The team at Climeworks did a great job organizing and hosting this event. And they worked with me to facilitate a handful of interviews with leaders in the carbon removal field on their reflections from the events and what is energizing them at this important juncture of this new industry that we're all at the very beginning of. I had a chance to speak with Julio Friedman, Chief Scientist at Carbon Direct, James Mwangi, founder and CEO at Africa Climate Ventures, Bugbad Kosar, Director of Environmental Justice at Carbon 180, and Marcus Extevar, Chief Climate Solutions Officer at Time CO2. I should note that the conversations that follow were recorded live from the Direct Air Capture Summit, which means that despite best efforts from me and some very patient Climeworks staff, you'll notice some variation in audio quality and some background noise across our guests. Regardless of these mostly minor technical issues, I think the substance of these conversations reveal some valuable themes coming out of the event itself that I hope will be orienting and enlightening as we navigate the complexities of this exciting new sector. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to my podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. My first guest is Dr. Julio Friedman, Chief Scientist at Carbon Direct. Julio, thanks for being here. It's a delight. Thank you, Naeem. Thanks so much. Um, can you give our listeners just a bit of background on yourself before I get into just a couple questions on reactions to the, uh, the event itself? Sure. So I've spent my career working uh, at the intersection of government policy, finance, technology, public acceptance. I've spent 30 years working on climate, 20 years working on carbon management, and 13 years in the carbon removal space. I worked for President Obama. Uh, I spent most of my career working for you. Um, and and tell us more about you know what you what your priorities are at Carbon Direct. So Carbon Direct is an end to end carbon management services company, and Carbon Direct Incorporated helps companies around the world figure out how to do this job. Uh, one of the guests here at the summit uh, was from J.P. Morgan Chase. They put two hundred million dollars to work in buying. CO2 removal purchases, we diligence that for them. Carbon Direct actually helped them make those decisions. Uh, we helped uh, Apple try to figure out how to invest in sustainable aviation fuels. 
We've helped Microsoft get their first purchase of CO2 removal. Uh, same thing with GlaxoSmithKline. For some finance companies, we may do high-level strategy. But in all cases, we are driven by the science. We have a science team of about 60 experts at Carbon Direct on everything from forestry to soils to mangroves to direct air capture, mineralization, biomass-based systems. And you need that to understand the carbon removal space. It is uncertain, complicated, dynamic. So you need deep expertise to be able to figure out how to put capital to work here. Yeah. And the sector is really lucky to have all the expertise at Carbon Direct. I mean, it's really been at the pinnacle of some of the key kind of catalytic purchases in the carbon removal sector over the last few years. What did you hope to kind of come to the Director Capture Summit? What did you kind of hope to see progress on in the CDR space? Let me start by saying this is kind of a pinch me moment. Hmm. I mean, this is the fourth Direct Air Capture Summit. There were about 400 people here on the ground. There were 2,500 people online. Uh, as somebody who was talking to crickets for a long time, when, you know, five years ago, a Direct Air Capture Summit was eight people who all knew each other. It's a very different world. And we're seeing now policies coming forward, many innovators and entrepreneurs with new companies. We've got real firm offtakes for CO2 removal that are durable. We have uh, a whole ecosystem that's come forward, and that was here. And to see all the parts of the ecosystem and how engaged, positive, forward-leaning they were was itself extraordinary. What was a big highlight for you? What was a new insight that you've taken away, aside from just like acknowledging that, wow, like this has come such a far, far way since you first started in this space? Well, there were a couple. Uh, one of the big insights for me uh, is actually from the talk my friend James Monji gave, and I believe he's going to be a guest. Um, the Global South uh, is not actually full of climate victims. It's full of future climate superpowers and entrepreneurs. And his vision for the Great Carbon Valley in Kenya is just one example of a place where direct air capture could scale quickly. It could scale profoundly. It could increase the global wealth and its uh, climate positive development. And at the same time, would allow us to get down the cost curve faster and better. It's just it, like these kinds of insights are few and far between. That was one that I thought was compelling. Another one that I thought was quite interesting was Rich Lester. Lesser. Uh, Rich Lesser uh, was the global chair of Boston Consulting Group. And he sees the world through uh, the engines of industry worldwide. And his sort of sense about how to take the next steps, about the imperative of investing now, about how do we buy down risk and get more people on the field, uh, I thought was pretty compelling. Uh, and it's good to hear it from somebody like him. Yeah. And their their report that I think they just put out uh, yesterday, I think gets into some of the kind of cost analysis that they did around how do we kind of get to some of these thresholds around $200 a ton, $100 a ton. What does that mean in terms of the scale we need to see, the energy requirements, and all of these other things that I'm really keen to dig in on? But specifically, they said that there are a couple of different knees in the curve. There's a couple of inflection points where if you hit a price point, you get a bunch more deployment. And that was based on experts and buyers who they talked to, prospective right. buyers. At $200 a ton, you get a lot of increase. That's kind of useful. And in that, he also showed that these people would want to buy direct air capture as part of a broader portfolio, which is the same thing we're seeing with our customers. They want to buy a portfolio that blends technologies and costs and risks and durability and, and all of these things as a way to understand the space and to move more quickly. Yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense. You know, your your session, you you made a point, and I've heard a few people kind of you know mention this as well over the course of the day. The importance of government procurement uh, as as one policy lever for scaling up carbon removal. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So people think that technologies spring Athena-like out of someone's head, and they're fully formed like an egg, and then something like the semiconductor or the iPhone just roils through our present into the future. That is simply not how it happens. In almost every case of anything, and that's whether it's the British longbow or whether it's flat screen TVs or whether it is lithium ion batteries, government procurement is what got that stuff scaled. And in every case, the government buys the first several doublings down the cost curve because price is less important for government and they are willing to pay for more. So if we want to see CO2 removal as a service, Government procurement of that is a very important way to get that stuff into the market. It's not just the money. The other things about it that are important is it lays out standards, procurement practice. It de-risks future purchases for industry where they see the government buying these things. So again, same kind of role for solar, for LEDs, the Department of Defense was a big buyer for those technologies. It allowed a company like Philips to start research, to get paid, and then move forward uh, and it allowed buyers of LEDs or solar panels to understand that they were already buying something that worked. So I think this is hugely important. In the U.S., we have a couple of competing bills, the CREST Act, the Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act. Uh, the EU is kicking around procurement as an option. I think these could stimulate an awful lot uh, of commercial activity and ground direct air capture and other forms of durable CDR in practical realms. Yeah. Yeah. The impact goes far beyond the actual kind of purchases that are that are made. Um, what do you wish you heard a bit more about over the course of the last uh, last day here at the DAC Summit? There were two issues that kept coming up that people sort of danced around. And we don't have good answers for them, so I'm not exactly surprised that we didn't hear clean answers. I would have liked to have heard those two topics dealt with more comprehensively. One of them is a very tough question in our business. Who pays? Who pays for MRG? Who pays for this for real? And, and fundamentally, the way the voluntary carbon market is structured doesn't deliver those things particularly well. It puts all the risk on the form of the project developers. And so we don't have enough of this. A, a corollary to that is that this uh, space for years seemed to be limited by supply. I don't think that's the case anymore. It seems that we're really limited by demand. We don't have enough customers. Again, that's part of the reason why government procurement could be important. But even when a company like Microsoft is spending $500 million and buying 2.7 million tons of removal, that's like one project. Yeah. And so yeah. how is it we get enough demand, enough long-lived demand, multi-year purchases and offtakes of enough scale to actually build these things? Because you know, these are $2 billion facilities. Cost a lot of money. You don't just do that betting on the car. You need the buyers. So how we organize the buyers of the world is a topic I wish was discussed more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and we're seeing some of that work being done through, you know, buying coalitions like Frontier and others, but you know, those are still really early on. And there's going to be a lot to learn around how can those be enhanced in ways that I think create that predictable predictable revenue stream to create kind of bankable projects for CDR developers. One hundred percent yes. And groups like Frontier are doing a good job sort of catalyzing offtakes and taking down some of that risk and buying at a very high initial premium. 
But we're talking about thousands of tons. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so a billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but a billion dollars or a thousand dollars a ton is not that much, actually. If you split it between 25 companies, then it's really not a lot. Yeah. Uh, more groups are joining. Next Era has their facility. Yeah. We're seeing other buyers coalitions coming together. But that seems to be an important but ultimately insufficient uh, set of options. We're going to need a bigger boat. Now, to a quote from Jaws, like we just need to figure out how to make uh, it easier for people to buy with lower risk. I love that. Last question, just kind of reflecting on the sessions and the conversations that you've had today. What are you energized by going back? So direct air capture specifically, but I think many of the durable CDR mechanisms have reached their Nike moment. Just do it. Yeah. Like, like we are now at that point. And so uh, one of the conversations that kept coming up over and over again was, the next step is building a bunch of pilots. We just need to do that. That is a commitment of capital that requires commercial offtakes, that requires technical diligence. Those are the kinds of things our company does quite well. So we're excited about how do we work with the people who are developing projects, work with our customers who want to buy, and then midwife this extraordinary outcome. Um, I also think uh, I'm increasingly excited about the fact that some of the uh, happy talk has been kicked out of this discussion too. Howard Herzog gave a brilliant talk at the beginning, classic Howie talk, in which he basically laid out just how hard it is and what we need to do. I think once you get past the happy talk, you start to think realistically in a clear-eyed way about what the next steps of work look like. And I think a lot of people are leaving today's meetings with that sense of clarity. Yeah. I can do the next set of things. That's great. That's great. Anything else uh, that, that would be useful to talk about or, or as you reflect on, on uh, the last day? Uh, first of all, the things that we're seeing here with direct air capture and all of the durable CDR, right behind it, sustainable aviation fuel. Right behind it, other kinds of clean fuels. Right behind it, power to X. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, the Seattle Little community is actually the vanguard for many parts of a decarbonized economy. And we are suffering the slings and arrows that those other groups are about to suffer. So I think we should figure out how to transport those learnings and share some of that in a way that's broader. Um, the last thing I'll say is I leave here with my last three quarters full. This is an optimistic crowd. They're fired up for work. There's human beings who are getting paid to do this and they love the work they do. There's young entrepreneurs who are inspired. There's old financiers who are inspired. It is wonderful to see this energy and enthusiasm and excitement here. And it makes me just want to dive into the scrum and push the ball around. I love that. That's great. Julio, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nane. Thank you. My next guest is James Mwangi. James is the founder and CEO of Africa Climate Ventures. James, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. I just came out of seeing a really, really exciting a presentation about the potential for direct air capture and carbon removal in general in East Africa and in Kenya in particular. But before we get into all of that, tell me a little bit more about you and what you're trying to accomplish at uh, Africa Climate Ventures. Thanks for the for the for the chance to 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 join in this conversation. Africa Climate Ventures came to exist in a in a somewhat unorthodox way. I spent most of my career focused on the question of youth employment and economic growth in Africa and ran up against the challenge of how do you create jobs and economic competitiveness? Africa is stuck in this unusual position where almost every African economy, almost without exception, 
is largely an exporter of pure raw materials and an importer of almost all its finished goods. Changing that is about identifying a way to just change the, the structural positioning of Africa and its comparative and competitive advantage. Once we began to think about that, we realized that a big opportunity to do that is through climate action. And that Africa's large, young, growing population, which is a large workforce, uh, its natural resources, which currently exported unprocessed, but also its ample supplies of land, interesting geology and other things. And then finally, its superabundance of renewable energy potential made it potentially key player in the, the new climate smart global economy and that Africa could actually benefit and profit from the process of global decarbonization, uh, as opposed to just being a climate victim, but actually play a leading role. And that led us to say, well, what would that need to look like in terms of policy and so on, but then actually what types of businesses need to exist to tap the opportunities across greening Africa's own consumption and production through its large population, um, shifting more of the world's energy intensive and emissions intensive industry to Africa, actually decarbonizing by shifting where we do things. And then finally, really scaling up carbon removal across nature-based, uh, all the way to engineered removals, um, taking advantage of the, the assets. And that's what Africa Climate Venture does, is it looks for opportunities in each of these spaces to build truly world-class, large-scale businesses. Let's double-click on the carbon removal opportunity. Can you tell us, and you went through this in really great detail in your presentation, but can you give us a pretty high-level overview of why you think uh, Kenya and, and parts of Africa are really well-positioned to be a leader in carbon removal? So uh, across carbon removal more generally, I just want to frame it uh, broadly. If you think about the various forms of car carbon removal, the continent is just replete in opportunity, whether it's temporary sequestration in, in the biosphere through everything from mangroves, rainforest protection, reforestation, soil carbon management, et cetera. There's lots of opportunities there. It's also a lot of opportunities to do stuff in, in, you know, using methods such as biochar and enhanced weathering, just given the scale of the land mass and the particular nature of its geology uh, and soil. But then when we get to direct air capture in particular, um, that's why people get a little bit surprised. They can kind of see why Africa could be interesting. Some of the other types of things I've, I've, I've described, there's a lot of investment or attention going into that. But when you think about what goes into doing direct air capture, um, and long-term storage to methods like mineralization, you suddenly realize Africa is actually really well endowed. And we'll, we'll take Kenya and Ethiopia, like the East African Rift Valley uh, as, as, a, as a case in point. Um, right now, we know that, um, you know, companies like Climeworks are, are, are doing direct air capture with mineralization, working in concert with Carbifix in Iceland, using taking advantage of the particular chemistry of the rocks there, the basalts injecting CO2 uh, dissolved in water to form a, a stable solid over time. It's probably the most durable uh, long-term carbon sequestration there is. Well, Kenya has very similar geology, uh, as does Ethiopia, like lots of those same results. A geothermal industry that's one of the biggest and fastest growing in the world and a super abundance of untapped renewable energy, both from geothermal, there's, there's like five times the amount of energy currently being, currently being used in the, in the Kenyan grid from geothermal that is as yet untapped. Um, not to mention many times that, many multiples that in terms of available solar and wind. So if you're looking for processes for capture that require the ample electricity or lots of heat, this is a really natural place to do it. And you have uh, underground formations that actually have, you know, 
for all intents and purposes, limitless long-term storage capacity. You take those things together and you suddenly see, and, and, and I think the most important thing to keep in mind for the energy is it has no competing decarbonizing use. It does not do any good to say you're powering your direct air capture in an industrialized country using renewable if right next to those renewables is a, is a coal-fired power plant. You should use common sense and you use the energy to decarbonize your grid first. But in large parts of Africa, there's nothing to decarbonize. And so actually you can scale these industries without feeling like you're taking two steps forward and one step back. So that's what I think makes this a particularly competitive space. Yeah, it seems to have all of the ingredients to be a leader in direct air capture. And I think your points around the need for a super abundance of renewable energy uh, and no competing decarbonization priorities is where I think, you know, parts of Africa are uniquely uh, positioned to lead on on carbon removal pr- approaches that are particularly energy intensive. You know, I think we'll need these technologies absolutely everywhere. But when we start to think about that massive level of scale that can have the economic impacts that you're talking about and the climate impact that we need to get to by 2050, we really need to be talking about uh, that super abundance of, of renewable energy. Um, as well as the workforce energy that you talked about in terms of just having this really motivated entrepreneurial and skilled workforce that is ready to mobilize around this. So all of these ingredients, really, really exciting for direct air capture in, in Kenya and neighboring countries. So when it came to thinking about the direct air capture summit, I was wondering, you know, what were you hoping to, to learn and what were your objectives in, in, in coming into this event? You know, there's a range of things. I think it's always really important. And, and we found it invaluable at HCB and at some of the other activities we're doing. I just say that if you're going to change the narrative, the first thing you need to understand, you're going to change the narrative that people have about Africa and its role in the, in, in the response to the climate crisis. You need to do a few things. The first is you actually need to understand where the state of the art is and one of the limiting factors that people are running into. It was really important to hear from folks who are working across various direct air capture technologies, uh, people who are dealing with market challenges, who are dealing with policy challenges. You know, what are the limitations? What's the trajectory of this market? I think too often, you know, there's a little bit of a distance from that awareness of what's happening on the global stage, particularly, you know, uh, for entrepreneurs working in the global south. But then conversely is then taking that understanding and having the opportunity to speak to the leaders in the field and say, if I'm understanding correctly that the things you need are lots of energy, the right kind of geology, um, the right kind of overall energy dynamics and, and a forward-leaning legislative and regulatory environment, you may not have thought about it in the first 20 or 30 countries you, you would consider to deploy it, but Kivanda has all of those things. And the beauty with a new technological area that's got a lot of growth, like direct air capture, is you're not trying to position a country like Kenya, for example, against countries with a 30-year lead and building a deep kind of enabling environment and so on. Everyone is more or less of the same starting line. And that's the kind of thing that allows company, economies that are trying to, you know, transform themselves to actually get a, a running start. It's one of the few places where you have a, something like a level playing field. And conveying that is actually really interesting. And then hearing the questions that people come back with, which tells us what else we need to do in order to make this investable uh, and so on. And maybe the last thing we wanted to do was say, hey, we are already investing in making it possible. Let us know what we need to put in place in order for this to move from being an intellectually interesting idea 
and turn it into an, you know, economically or financially compelling investment proposition. Yeah, maybe just to focus in on that last part, you know, how do you see this kind of community that engaged around the DAX summit and just the key carbon removal community more broadly, you know, how can, how can they be helpful in, in driving this effort? Firstly, there's, there's a mindset that I, that, that I think depression is already very pleasant in that community, which is, think about it, if you're going to, you know, be highly trained in whatever scientific field or economic or business field, et cetera, and decide to enter an industry that really doesn't exist yet, a lot of the motivation in the sense that we're facing this climate emergency, and this is one of the things we're just going to need. And so there's a real sense of mission and a real sense of the scale of the climate problem and a beginning of saying, in addition to sounding the alarm and saying all those things you should stop doing, people need to start innovating around what things we should start doing. Now that mindset, I, I think it needs to be coupled with a recognition that we got into the current climate crisis through the most globally integrated marketplace humanity has ever seen. We took fossil fuels from one place, burned them in another to make products to be used in a third right? Uh, again and again and again. We are not going to get out of the scale of mess we've, we've, we've kind of built out by leaving parts of the world on the bench. And I think what's been interesting is seeing people think about, well, actually, I'm already kind of stepping out of some of my historic, you know, the, the constraints I worked with in terms of what's an economically viable activity. It turns out actually scrubbing the atmosphere is an interesting waste management business. But in addition, it's a business whose fundamentals make it really well suited for places that might be not yet have the infrastructure to do certain other things because its requirements are different. So it, it's that shift of frame and that, that sense of, okay, we are going to need to think truly globally if we're going to get to the kind of sale we need and we need to leapfrog to that. It can't take the amount of time it took the fossil fuel industry to go global. This industry has to go global from day one because we're on a clock. Yeah. And it certainly helps that, like you mentioned earlier, so many countries are starting uh, roughly at the same point, even with passage of laws like the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States and some of the certification work that's happening in the EU. What I try to kind of convey to, to my counterparts in, in Canada, given that's my focus at the moment, is we're actually very early in this industry. And so what leadership looks like in this space is yet to be defined. And there is so much opportunity uh, and we are right at the beginning parts of this. Uh, and so that creates this massive potential that I think you've rightly identified into a lot of the constraints that we have, like you said, around thinking about what's possible and where and to what scale. Those all reset. We're starting from a blank page here. So that's what makes this really exciting for me and what really, really got me excited about your presentation at the DAC Summit. You know, knowing that the DAC Summit is a great convening for... Uh, so many thinkers in the carbon removal space and so many conversations that are happening. What do you wish you heard more about? It's an interesting question because I heard a lot that I like. Um, I, I think it's not that I wish I'd heard more of it. It's that a lot of people are calling attention to the fact that there is an early stimulated demand, but that next layer of, of, of that next tier of demand that gives us, you know, several more years of runway for this industry to continue to shape up, uh, really needs to come into a little bit more focus. 
I do think that being a little bit more explicit about what's that evolutionary pathway from an entirely voluntary and stimulative market with a few actors trying to, to get things going, how does that evolve in, into kind of feeding into the compliance markets of the world? I think people know that's where we're trying to get to. But I think, and there's some good conversations about that. I think translating that into a few imperatives, people who are designing these compliance regimes in different parts of the world and think that they could do today to kind of make this better. Um, it, it's something I didn't hear as much of. I think there's a recognition that some well-intended policy measures that are stimulative in narrow sense, like the Inflation Reduction Act, like the various limitations around the European ETS market and the carbon border adjustment, all of these things need to be talked about really carefully if the goal is not just to maximize any individual country's share or this one activity, but to maximize the global stock of it. Um, and I think that's, again, a conversation that's beginning to pick up. But, but in all fairness, this was a, you know, for a one-day conference, every session just felt like it was so rich with so many different perspectives and such a wide range of people coming together around this interesting problem. Um, that, yeah, I wish, I wish you had a second day, but, but this day was very well spent. Yeah. Yeah. The Climeworks team did a, a good job of bringing in all of those different perspectives. Um, and, and certainly agree. We need to kind of touch on some of these points a bit more, um, you know, as relates to compliance markets and, and getting that kind of longer term demand in place and, and what that's going to look like. Last question here is just, what do you, what are you hoping to kind of, uh, take back to your day-to-day -day work? What are you feeling energized by? Well, I think that there were some early signs that, that we may be on track to actually do a major DAC deployment, uh, that there was interest, uh, and I, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of, of announcement. So later this year, I think you may have heard, I, I talked about the fact that Kenya is hosting, um, uh, an inaugural Africa climate accent summit that's specifically intended to demonstrate and showcase the way that African countries can play a role beyond being you know, kind of the definitive climate victims around, you know, here are the solutions that, that could meaningfully com con uh, contribute to global decarbonization. Notice I did not say to African decarbonization. People often say, well, Africa is only four or 5% of the problem. Like, you know, why should we invest there? The issue is you don't, you can't, you know, an integrated global market, there are things you do that in one place that actually affect, affect emissions in others, whether it's carbon removal or shifting production, and there's a lot of that that's going to be at the summit. And I think it was good to kind of lay out that that's coming. I think the other thing that I'm, I'm, I'm taking away from this is, and the reason that's exciting to say that we, we may be able to do a major deployment is we can demonstrate a really interesting point about the power of direct air capture in these places. Also, it's an anchor demand for energy and it's a bankable anchor demand. It's not actually coming at the extent of other energy generation. Truly, what it allows for is currently stranded projects that are waiting for energy buyers. Um, lots of high quality renewable energy resources actually be developed. And that may actually increase the stock of energy available for other industry and other activity. But easy thing to say, I'm really excited that if we get the kind of commitment that I think we heard uh, on the margins of this year's conference, we might be able to actually demonstrate it in one or two places and say, this is how many more additional uh, megawatts of capacity we were able to unlock for the country's economy by virtue of having a DAC plant as, a, as an off-taker. That's really cool. It really flips the conversation about DAC and energy consumption on its head, which is really, really exciting. Uh, James, anything else you think folks should take away 
uh, from from the DAC summit and just from from some of the progress we've seen in CDR as of late uh, before we go? Well, uh, I'll just again underline that, you know, anyone who's intrigued by this idea of Africa achieving something, you know, this idea of climate positive growth or the investment opportunities that come from tapping Africa's climate positive contribution potential, um, definitely consider coming down to, uh, to Kenya and to Nairobi September 4th to the 6th for the Africa Climate Action Summit. A great time to be in East Africa. You can combine it with a whole lot of interesting stuff that happens in that part of the world at that time. But it'll also be a real gathering of all of the actors across politics, business, uh, investment, uh, philanthropy, and so on. Really asking, you know, which are these spaces that we want to to start kind of building momentum around and really shifting that narrative and really making this an investment case for the planet. Yeah, that makes sense, and we'll provide. Uh, links to that, if that's uh, available um, for, for for folks to learn more about that, it also would be an awesome opportunity to hang out in Nairobi. James, thanks so much for yeah. the time. I appreciate it. It's a privilege to be on, Naeem, and thanks for all the work you're doing. My next guest is Ugbad Kosar, Director of Environmental Justice at Carbon 180. Ugbad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Naeem. So Ugbad, tell me a little bit more about uh, about you and your role in carbon removal and what you're doing at Carbon 180. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So I'm the Director of Environmental Justice at Carbon 180. Uh, it's a relatively new role, um, although we have been doing environmental justice work for the past few years now, really to inform our federal policy work that we do, um, as well as everything else in the ecosystem. So when we work with science and innovation, when we work with our internal operations as an organization, when we're thinking about our outreach, like how does justice and equity really intersect and also underpin the work that we do? So that's really the bulk of the work um, that I have going on at Carbon 180. That being said, my background is actually in forestry and forest sciences, which is really how I got introduced to the carbon removal space. Um, I was really interested in reforestation. I was interested in how climate change impacts our forest systems and how the reverse as well, how our forests can impact climate change. Um, so I was really interested in learning a little bit more about this. And as I dug deeper, I realized, wow, there's a lot of limitations here and there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a lot of drawbacks and, and risks and trade-offs that we're going to have to make. So um, it made me start thinking a little bit more about the technological side. And that's how I ended up really at Carbon 180 and oh. how I got introduced to the broader carbon removal space. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about about working on carbon removal is what makes the work so exciting. It's not because it's a silver bullet or it works perfectly, but when you start to learn about the complexities and not just the opportunities, but also the challenges is what makes it such an interesting field to work in. Interesting and difficult yeah. at the same time, uh, because there are so many different things that you have to balance and keep in mind. And I, I, I don't take it lightly that ultimately we're impacting the ecosystem and we're impacting people's lives in the work that we do. So when we think about trade-offs, it's, it's one thing to just think about trade-offs as something on paper. Uh, it's another thing to think about what that actually plays out in real life and how can we make sure that we're minimizing those harms um, for not just one community, but really everyone on the world, which is it's, it's, it's a daunting but exciting task, I think, to take on. So can you tell me a little bit more about some of your priorities at, at Carbon 180 right now? Absolutely. I think the number one thing I'm doing right now is really just thinking about the role of environmental justice and carbon removal, which honestly is not clear. Uh, these are two different 
I won't, I won't say industries, although carbon removal is, is an industry. I guess fields is a good way of, of putting it, where there's a large body of work, there's a large body of research that's happened in both of these realms, but they haven't necessarily overlapped or intersected. And I'm trying to look at that intersection specifically to wonder, can these coexist? If so, how? Um, and when we're thinking about specifically federal policy with the work that I do at Carbon 180, how are we ensuring that environmental justice principles and priorities are really the foundation for the outcomes of the work that we do? And it's really informing the way that the scale up of carbon removal unfolds in the next five to 10 to 20 to 50 years, depending right. on the industry. Right. Um, so a, a big portion of the work that I do is uh, education and outreach. Uh, I mentioned on the panel earlier that there's still a very low familiarity on carbon removal. How are people really thinking about uh, the role of carbon removal in their day-to-day -day life? Um, and that's where I'm trying to draw these connections to show that it's not something that's far removed, but it really is integrated in this broader sort of holistic transition that we're thinking about that's necessary for, for us to meet the, the, the climate goals that we've set out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what did you come to the DAC Summit hoping to, hoping to learn, hoping to come away with? Yeah, I think maybe not learning, although I'm always open to learning. Yeah. I think the one thing I was honestly excited about is to get a temperature check of the room. There's mm. been so much that's happened, at least in the space for me for the past few years um, that I've observed. And I just wanted to see, are people celebratory about it? Are people apprehensive about it? Are oh. people excited? Are they invigorated? Are they um, are they feeling overwhelmed? And the way that I sort of experienced this this summit today was there's a lot of excitement and it's very celebratory. I oh. think there's a lot of wins that people are seeing and there's excitement about breaking ground on projects. And you know, this is me having my U.S. centric focus, but the the DAC hubs and the potential of having real demonstrations to show what DAC can actually do. I think is exciting to a lot of people. And so I really just wanted to see what it was like with the people that spend their time day in and day out on this. And I was pleasantly surprised by it. Oh, that's good. I was going to ask. I mean, that's great to hear that the, the temperature check was, was mostly a positive one. Um, what was a highlight for you? What was, you know, a new insight that you've, you've taken away over the course of the last day or so? Um, I think one of the things that I was really excited about, and I don't mean to shamelessly plug one of my colleagues, but Anu um, at Curvin 180, she works on our science and innovation work out there. She did a lot of digging deep into NRV, so monitoring and product verification. And it's, it's a theme that continued to come up throughout the day. Um, but what I really appreciate about what she said is, yes, we need demonstrations to be able to show that this is real and these projects happen. But we also need unassailable MRV. Those were her words to oh. make sure that we're building trust along the way. So we're not only showing that carbon removal is a thing and it exists, but it also does what we say it's going to do. And I just really appreciated her tying those two pieces um, together. Yeah, it feels like it feels like we're past the kind of part of the conversation that's about, oh, this is carbon removal. Here's the introduction. But it, it actually does need to work. And mm -hmm. I think that Carbon 180 has done such great, you know, Anu and 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 Peter before her and, and the rest of the team have done such a great job of of also framing MRV beyond just what's important from the vantage point of a corporate buyer, but what's important from the vantage point of all the other stakeholders and rights holders that are impacted by uh, by a carbon removal project, including communities, and making sure that MRV serves as a tool not just for the people buying credits, but but for the broader kind of ecosystem. 
Absolutely. I think one of the things you hear often is a lot of this information is just not accessible or the idea of, of carbon removal or climate technology. I mean, it's just, it's a few people in a lab coat somewhere in an ivory tower. And right. the idea of bringing it back into a translatable, digestible form that also informs people of what's happening, I think is exciting and something that we need to keep doing in, in the field. Yeah. Yeah. And building on that a little bit, I mean, what, what do you wish you heard more about over the last day? Honestly, maybe it's me being a uh, the person that I am and the work that I do, but more conversation on justice mm. and equity. I think because we're here in, in Zurich, right, and um, Europe just has a different context and a different history, uh, there may be a disconnect of what's happening in the U.S. with the environmental justice movement and what could be applicable to other places around the world. The the very principles of, of EJ and just the idea of things that I mentioned earlier, like consent-based siting, like community engagement, like thinking about global supply chains and workforce and all of these fundamental pieces that may not be environmental justice in quotations, but certainly have shared themes and, and issues is something that I would love to continue building on. And it's not lost on me that we're here in in Switzerland, and we're talking about EJ. So that alone, I think, is is a win to start off with. But there's definitely room to keep the conversation growing and thinking about how does EJ not only live in this one specific piece of community engagement, but how does it intersect with everything else that's going on in all of the other panels that we had today? We could have very easily drawn uh, ties back to the EJ movement. So I think there's 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 room to grow in this space. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Last question, you know, when you think about the conversations that you've had over the last day or so, the sessions you attended, you know, what are you feeling energized by? What are you hoping to take back to your day-to-day -day work at Carbon 180? That there are so many people who are working on director capture alone. Hmm. And there are so many smaller startups that are thinking of different innovative ways to get up to tackle the same problem. And I'm just, I'm really excited about the diversity of options that we have here and just getting really creative about deployment by thinking about the suite or the portfolio of options. It's not just the the portfolio in the sense of carbon removal, but just looking at within DAC itself, I've met so many people who are thinking about it from completely different ways and using different technology. And they had their different, you know, back to the trade-offs conversation that we had. And being able to have those options when you go to a community, cool. I think is only going to make the 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 field better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I've also seen that the greater kind of diversity and approaches and thinking about direct air capture that we almost have to start thinking about direct air capture and all the subcategories of yeah. direct air capture and all of the opportunities and challenges that all of those come with. It can't even kind of just talk about DAC in and of itself anymore. Um, I'm glad to hear you're really energized about that. Is there anything else that you think folks should have uh, hopefully taken away from that or that really stood out to you over the course of the last day? Yeah, I think the one thing is we're just at a place right now where the field is very impressionable oh. and I don't want to say it's a very immature state or we're at the nascency, but we're definitely in the throes of being able to define what good carbon removal is going to look like and what good DAC is going to look like. And I just want folks to really take that away and understand that, you know, what we do in the next few years is really going to have an impact down the road 20 years from now. So it's, it's really a time now to figure out how to do it responsibly and do it equitably and just really think about how can I be a part of a really transparent transition hmm. and what the role of carbon removal and DAC has, has in it is is pretty central to that piece. Yeah, that's that's really inspiring. And I, I think that that could also just inspire so many people to get into this work, uh, knowing that there's a way to to do this 
that could potentially be more equitable and not reinforce existing harms and and thinking about some of this stuff that hopefully attracts an entirely new group of people to working in this in this area. So that is really inspiring. Um, Ubad, thank you so much for the work you do, number one, but also for taking the time to chat with me today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nay. Thanks so much. My next guest is Marcus Extiver, Chief Climate Solutions Officer at Time CO2. Marcus, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Nice to be here. And I should also say, uh, new advisory board member for Carbon Removal Canada. Yes, I'm so thrilled to uh, you know mix it up and see how I can be helpful. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled to have you on board, and uh, and think we'll we'll really benefit from from your experience around carbon removal. And but before we get into that, tell me a little bit about you and what you're working on at Time CO2. Sure thing. Well, Time CO2 is uh, kind of a new thing for me. I joined that group pretty recently, just this year, and it's actually a new business too. So it's fun to be at the beginning of something trying to form it up. What we're trying to do in a nutshell is make a business that helps other businesses take action on climate and nature, specifically by making it easy and simple. Um, In practical terms, the two things we're trying right now are, first, we're putting together baskets of high-quality solutions in climate and nature. Carbon removal is part of that. Um, And, you know, making those available for companies that want to buy and contribute to those projects or maybe counterbalance carbon emissions. And then because we're connected to Time, the media company, we want to tell the story about that. So that means media content. It can be film, television, documentary, written word. The more we hear about companies taking action, we think the more companies will want to take action. That's the theory. Right. And that storytelling piece, I think, came up a few times over the course of the day of being so important, how much work we still have to do yeah. in telling the story around carbon removal, but also just so many other um, sectors within climate uh, remain really not well understood by by corporates, by policymakers, mm-hmm. by the general public. And so there's just so much opportunity and potential in being able to do that well. And like you said, just inspire so much more action when people hear about how this is being done elsewhere. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we have we have the opportunity to be working with a really stable and reputable media company. That's time. Yeah. But it's still up to us all together to figure out, well, how to tell the stories. Uh, climate is such a weird and abstract thing to work on. Right. You can't really, yes, we see the effects of changing climate, but I mean, on a day-to-day basis, it's hard to observe, very abstract. It gets technical very fast. It's no wonder people are confused by this, never mind people whose job it is to try to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, what are what are your immediate priorities right now at Time CO2? What are you critically focused on? Sure. Well, we're a new business, so we're really critically focused on things like product market fit, mm-hmm. organizing our team, sharpening our product offering, uh, satisfying our customers. So in practice... It means having a really clear sense of what climate solutions are out there and how to make them available. But really, we spend a lot of time focusing on where are companies? What do they need? Uh, are there questions they are afraid to ask? Can we help them answer those questions? Can we be a partner on their uh, climate journey is a phrase that I've heard a lot here, and I, I'll, I'll use it again. But people are starting somewhere, and wherever they get started, we want to be there to say, hey, we can help you. So we spent a lot of time focusing on what do businesses actually need? What are they struggling with? Trying to understand that. Yeah. And what were you kind of hoping to either learn or see progress on when you when you you know, decided to come to the DAX Summit? Well, first and foremost, I just wanted to uh, hear more about Climeworks, right? They're a company I followed from afar, like a lot of us in this space have. And I've had a chance to interact with some of the folks and meet the founders, but to never really be in their backyard oh. and see sort of what it would be like when they throw a big party and who comes. Yeah. And then... Just generally, you know, I've worked in carbon removal for a while, 
And direct air capture is one of the very visible forms of that thing. Um, but just really to see who else is interested, like who else would show up. Uh, when I was introduced to it, it was still pretty little and a weird and abstract thing happening in the corner. And to see it grow so fast is so interesting. So I'm always interested, like, who comes? Why do they come? And that's what I ask people, you know, over drinks, like, why did you come here? What are you trying to get out of this? Right. Yeah. And and you did, you had a great session this morning. I was wondering if you could maybe double click a little bit on maybe one or two of the key takeaways from from that session. Yeah, sure thing. So I find myself in this funny position where I'm like a engineer and science person, but I'm spending more and more time thinking about uh, storytelling. So I use words like, analogy and narrative and story and trust. Trust was the key idea running through my mind. How do we establish trust in the broader community around this topic? What does it mean to have uh, low trust generally in society with respect to solving the climate problem? And so I think what I was really thinking about was language. The way we describe carbon removal matters. It matters for integrating it into the bigger climate conversation first. And then from there into the broader society who can relate to it or be inspired or at least be supportive uh, as these solutions develop. So language, narrative, and trust around the space. I think that's what I was going for. That's great. That's great. And and what was, you know, a highlight for you uh, when you weren't kind of sharing your knowledge and your perspective with the rest of the with the rest of the group? When you've had kind of conversations with folks and you were kind of learning about why are people here and what are they trying to accomplish? What was a what was a highlight? What's a takeaway from for you from from this event? You know, one takeaway for me is that uh, I'll unpack this a bit, but the quality of the speakers and the discussion on stage and in the room, but on stage was very high. Hmm. And I think why is that? Well, when you go to a conference, if it's on a more established topic, there are just tons and tons of people who maybe are just been working in the industry for a long time, or they've come in and out of it. But carbon removal is not really like that. The people that are really working on it or driving it really, really care about it. Yeah. And so they have really deep knowledge. They're very passionate about it. I don't mean, you know, rah-rah passion. I just mean like like the deep, quiet, burning passion. So the session you were part of, some of the other sessions, it really came through. And that's just really cool. I, I kind of feed off of that because uh, I, I think of myself that way too. And it's just amazing to be surrounded by, you know, dozens of other people and just sort of try to absorb some of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It definitely came up. What, what do you wish you maybe heard a little bit more about over the course of the last day? What are we not talking enough about? What are we not talking about? Um, here's like a really blunt one. The money. You never talk about the money enough. What I mean by that is the investment, public, private, philanthropic, where is it coming from? Who's doing it? And specifically why? Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm a real nerd for that topic. The default case in the world is we're not focused enough on climate solutions, which means in part, we're not spending enough money. So I think it's always relevant to ask anyone that spends any money in this direction, why are you doing this? No one's really telling you to do this. You've decided to do that. I am interested to understand why. Cool. So I think, uh, of course that was a theme running through the day a little bit, but that was one thing that was maybe underemphasized. And I think another thing we could have discussed more, and it came up a little bit in the environmental justice panel. And there was a little bit of awkwardness uh, because, you know, let's face it, like the traditional European view is just very different than the North, North American view. And that came up in the session, but broadening it to even, well, justice is huge, but if I could say beyond justice, just into 
social dynamics of these new solutions? What does it mean for these things to exist in the world, in communities? And how do people feel about it? Maybe it's premature because it is early days and there just aren't that many that actually are real. Yeah. But it can't just be a group of climate nerds or carbon removal nerds talking about projects at conferences. You know, it's got to be at some point a broader conversation. Yeah. Uh, that's where maybe policy is a good crossover. So that's a long winded answer, but I think a little bit more about what do people actually think about this and does that matter and when does it matter and how I'm always interested in that mostly because I want to learn more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they've tried to cover a lot of important themes throughout the course of the conference, but there's always opportunities to kind of go a little deeper on some of these issues. And I think that generally that kind of cross-section of technology and social sciences that are relevant to carbon removal, it's, it's important that we start to get there and you have this kind of tension about, well, is it too early to talk about it? Shouldn't we just, you know, I've heard folks say, let's get projects in the ground and that's how we're really going to learn about this stuff. And I think there's truth to both of those things, but it's uh, something that I know we can't cover everything, but something I know we, we could always, uh, when we're thinking about DAC Summit 2024, mm -hmm. things that we can talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Um, reflecting on the sessions, you know, that, that happened over the course of the day, the conversations that you've had over the last little while, what are you energized by? What are you hoping to take back to your to your work at Time CO two? Ah, great question. So I've actually been to taking notes, try to be a good uh, good teammate, and not just sort of go to a conference and then say, "Yeah, I went to some conference." Yeah, actually try to bring something back. Some of the themes around um, how people are thinking about really specific things, like the concept of offsetting, the language of offsetting, mm -hmm. the idea of uh, the importance of quantification and trust or measurement, verification, reporting, the MRD thing. Um, so this is very technical now, but whether a company will choose to invest in a climate solution because they want to do some carbon accounting or just because they want to make a contribution and do a good thing cool. and maybe tell their stakeholders about a good thing. That's a dynamic we discuss at time CO2 often. Right. And, uh, I heard a little bit of that here. And, um, the last thing I would say is the the fact that the opportunities are not isolated to north america that's obvious but look in the united states you have to say that out loud yeah say that there's stuff happening other places that's actually similar but different to the way it's happening there and it's always important to bring that back so even though you know we say we want to serve multiple markets it's really important to understand how europe is thinking about it different countries africa different regions in africa we heard a little bit about today so that's something i'm going to bring back yeah that really stood out to me as well. Just this feeling that this is a global a, a global challenge that we can all work on, and every country is going to bring something different to this challenge. And it's nice to be able to pull ourselves out of the kind of U.S. centric view and look at you know what are the opportunities in totally. Kenya, or selfishly, what are the opportunities in Canada or Europe or whatever the case is. But it's it's really cool to start thinking about carbon removal as something that's that's a a global activity that we all take. Part Just of. having an idea, yeah. I'm I'm not. Uh... You ever seen these maps? Like imagine a map of the world. It's like people are trying to describe or communicate where a certain type of activity is happening in different ways around the world. Right. We should make a map and on every country space in the world, put sort of the type of carbon removal activity, right. this little icon that's happening. I like that. Maybe there are only a few icons now, but yeah. already I think we could see some differences. It just might be a fun, like good exercise. That would be a cool exercise. I love a good visual of yeah. a map and like what's yeah. going on in that. Exactly. That's great. Um, Marcus, anything else that you think folks should should be kind of noodling on a little bit as we come away from DAC Summit uh, that we didn't get the, the chance to cover? 
I think, uh, and this was, this is self-serving a little bit because it was one of my ideas coming in, but the carbon removal community were sort of outsiders in the broader climate community. And that's okay. When you do new things, you're a little bit, uh, different, but I think it's important for us to not conform, but to pay attention because, you know, we're the little kids. It's important to pay attention to what the big kids are doing. If we want to be like them or get integrated into the world that they have built or right. just respectfully find some dialogue. So I'm personally always interested in learning about that. There are a lot more people here, more expert in that world than me, but that's something I think everybody in carbon removal can, can pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially as someone who thinks that carbon removal is not some science fiction-y silver bullet to climate change, but it's one of many integral tools to addressing climate change, we kind of need to integrate a bit better into the broader discussion. I think a way to do that, so I have this idea that we'll know that the community is starting to mature when we don't just call it carbon removal as if that's all one thing. Ooh. You know, like in Canada, at some point, we'll probably start to talk about agriculture and we'll come up with some new way to talk about carbon removal in the context of soil agriculture or forestry right. or minerals and mining. Right. Those are things that already exist that people know about. We can sort of draft underneath that. And I'm not exactly sure how to do that yet, but I predict that that's a sign of maturation of the space. And it's, it's probably just a faster way to get stuff done yeah. to make it relevant to the local, to the local people. Right. It's like this, almost like this precision around the conversation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right now it's an abstract thing. That's a catch all and it exists outside, but it will slowly start to filter. We saw this happen in carbon utilization, making stuff out of CO2. And I think we'll see it with this field too. We'll see. That's very cool. Marcus, thanks for everything you do. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. 